Welcome to Agent Investor, where you'll hear inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. Join your host, investor and broker Tom Caffarella, as he dives into how active agents are delivering a high level of service to clients while spotting opportunities, negotiating with homeowners, signing deals, and building additional streams of income. You'll come away from each episode with practical tips, tactics, and action steps while being inspired to open your eyes to the potential deals that are all around you. After all, you have the skills, you have the market knowledge, you have access to the information. Why not leverage all those assets to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? If you're an active agent interested in investing in real estate and building passive income, this is your podcast. And now let's jump into this episode of Agent Investor. I'm your host, Tom Caffarella, and I'm very, very excited for my guest today, Don Costa out of Central Valley, California. Don, what's going on today? Uh, not a lot, man. Just living the dream and having a good time. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. So you've got a lot, a lot of projects coming up and I want to kind of get into how you got there. Um, now you talked about the fact a little bit before we got on the podcast that you kind of had to build your business twice. Why don't we start off with the first time around, the first go around? Okay. Yeah, I got, I, so I got into the business in 2003, um, back before I think uh, podcasts and a lot of the internet stuff we have. I don't even think YouTube was really a thing back when I first started. Not that I remember now. Yeah. I don't, wholesaling wasn't really a coined term at the time. Um, it was Carlton Sheets days and, 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 you know, those kind of things, infomercials, right? So I got into it then. I started as a door knocker working for foreclosure. And um, found some, I was really, really good at, at uh, getting people to sell me their homes. So that was a, a, something I figured out real quick. And, and I just started, um, started rehabbing because that was, that was what it seemed like you needed to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, built up a successful company. Most of what I did was really creative, subject to purchasing and all that for the first five years of my business. Uh, built up a company that uh, turned out to be a real estate uh, company, uh, a loan. I had a mortgage company, property management, and we were flipping. But it wasn't a real business. So I had a lot of success. I made a lot of money. I think my worst month was like 30 grand in one month. My, my best month was about 120 in one month. And um, built a business where I was making a ton of money, but it wasn't a real business. I didn't have the real, real people in place, real processes in place to really kind of um, have it run like it should run. And um, yeah, so... <laughs> So what do you what do you mean by that? So you are obviously, you know, the the first thing that you were doing right is you were obviously just buying stuff off market, right? Buying stuff off market. Yeah. So what what we were doing right, what I was doing right was, um, you know, going directly to the seller, getting deals well below market value, mm-hmm. um, structuring the deals in a manner was subject to I, I would use subject to the to um, lock the property up and I would use uh, private money, investor capital to fund, you know, the reinstatement money to the bank. Um, the rehab, and then we were flipping these properties, and that was all right. That was that was where I was really making money. Mm-hmm. Um, where I went wrong was um, just getting getting like you know a bunch of businesses going that I wasn't serious about. They were distractions from the core business, the core of what I was doing right. And so those things became money sucks at a certain time. You know, when the market started to change and um, it started to turn and go for the worst, those things became like holes in the ship. And um, so my, my um, the stuff I was doing right couldn't keep up with it, if it makes sense. Yeah. So um, it wasn't the, you know, you kind of mentioned that or alluded to the fact that when the market crashed, you kind of fell on hard times a little bit, right? Right. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely. When the market crashed, everything fell apart. It was um, it was a fast sinking ship. Like I said, um, holes everywhere. Uh, there was hemorrhaging money. I couldn't keep up with it, and I literally lost everything. So, were you doing anything? You were doing the the rehabbing, and then the other businesses were what you said. You had a loan origination business. What else? Uh, real estate company, property management company, loan origination business. Um, I was I was in the process of developing um, sunglasses the designs for a sunglass line. Um, I had invested almost a million dollars into a restaurant and nightclub that had opened in January of two thousand and eight. Um, you know, I had I had multiple businesses going on, and there's nothing wrong with having multiple businesses. The thing was, is I didn't have the right leaders, the right people in place, the right systems and processes. I was I was um, I, I just thought everything I touched turned to gold, and nothing could go wrong. And so I was just throwing money out at stuff as fast as money was coming in. And that was my mistake. Now, when you say everything you touched turned to gold, was that because the market was just doing so well and everything seemed to be working for you at the time? Absolutely. We were, I mean, we were in a market. Anybody who was around in that market will know exactly what I was, what I'm saying when I say it, but you could pretty much throw a rock at a house and turn a profit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was ridiculous. If you, if you went over budget and it took longer than it was supposed to take, you made more money. I mean, it was just, it was the weirdest thing. Right. And, um, and so I think a lot of us, um, especially the, those of us who are new in the business got this real strong false sense of security, which is something I'm kind of seeing right now. Right. I mean, the market's kind of doing the same thing. We're, we're wholetailing a lot right now, which basically means we're buying it and we're sticking it on the market. And we're not even touching it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're making as much on some of these projects as we would have if we were to rehab them and put them on the market. Yeah. And, so I want to caution newer people right now that are listening to this, that it's great, take advantage of it, but put the right systems and processes in place because markets are, do change, they do turn. And uh, I'm a prime example of losing everything because I wasn't prepared for that. So as of today, we're April 2018. How much further along do you think we have to go with this particular market? Man, if I had a crystal ball, <laughs> I wouldn't, I'd be in a beach, right? I'm uh, only only wondering because you, you've obviously you've been through it, and you know maybe you know you saw some warning signs last time that maybe you didn't heed, or maybe you're seeing some stuff this time that maybe looks familiar. I do see things that look familiar right now. I see the um, just the, the craziness in the market, and it's craziness on all sides. I see craziness from real estate investors and wholesalers. I see craziness in in kind of the retail side of things, but I feel like in, in my eyes, it's like 2003, 2004 when the craziness is starting. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what damaged and destroyed the last market cycle was um, the, the liar loans, the, the no income, no asset loans, um, stated income, as some of them refer to, and some of the other um, crazy loan structures they had out there. The pick a payment where you could actually pay less than your interest each month. And so you could buy a half million dollar house, even though you're a busboy making $8 an hour. Yep. And um and so it, the negative amortization, I guess, basically where if you don't make the entire interest payment, it just goes to your, you know, adds to your, uh, your lack of equity. So I don't see those things. And those were a large part of what drove the market last time because people that could not or should not have been buying houses were able to buy multiple houses at a time or refinanceable money out. I don't see that. Uh, but I do see some of the craziness. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic. What, I'm, what we're doing in our company now is we're taking advantage of the money that's in the market, the opportunities are in the market, but making sure we're prepared to take advantage of when the market changes and to be able to add value when we have to add value. So what is that? What techniques or you know, strategies are you using for that right now in this market? 
Well, for instance, one of the things we're doing right now, so we're rehabbers. Um, and for uh, the first, you know, five years of our business, we were heavy rehab. That's all we did. We didn't wholesale. We didn't do anything else but rehab. In the last quarter of last year, we threw a couple of houses on the market. We just said, you know, we're going to throw these on and see what happens. We didn't touch them. We had one that the roof was caving in. The foundation was bowing. It had trash in it. We threw it on the market and we made 30 grand on the property. And the numbers worked where we had it, where we had bought it. We had bought it. It was lower end property. We bought it 50 grand. And that's where it worked as a rehab. We end up getting, you know, um, $86,000 for the property after all the fees and commissions. We netted about 30 grand. <clears throat> Yep. So if I were to rehab that thing, I probably would have made 25. Got it. Okay. So we're taking advantage of some that kind of thing, the craziness in the market, the fact that people are willing to pay more than they should and um, that kind of thing. We're, we're definitely making the money we can make. At the same time, we're making sure that we're maintaining our rehab side of the business. We're maintaining our relationships so that we have to add value again. We can add value. We're watching days on market. Um, we're watching all the kind of market signs and indicators to see if there's any changes or things sitting longer than they're supposed to. And we're just making sure we're prepared to act on that. And the other thing I want to add is, is I'm, I always say this isn't a hope and pray business. We always know our numbers, right? So yep. even though we know markets appreciating, when we're buying today, we're buying on the comps we see today. Now, six months from now or July of this year, we may be able to sell that property for $5,000 more. We're not buying based on that. We're buying based on what the numbers tell us they are today. So when you're saying you're looking at days on market and stuff like that, what, what are you seeing right now? Are you seeing any signs of weakness or you see kind of full speed ahead right now? In, in, in my market and the markets I'm in? Yeah, with, with what you're yeah. watching. I see, I see um, basically, I see, basically, you know, activity, um, hunger, desire for properties. I see a great market to be a seller in right now. I don't see any indicators of it slowing down in my market, but my market's a little bit. So we're in California. I, I believe you're in California too, right? No, I'm actually in Boston. So I'm, I'm on the opposite uh, coast, but we kind of have similar markets though. Um, California and Boston kind of go hand in hand in terms of just the, the ups and downs. And we tend to peak really high when we go to the peak and then, you know, we fall, you know, fairly hard when it, when it goes down. Right. Well, my market, so Fresno is an anomaly in California. So you got San Francisco Bay Area, which, you know, entry-level homes are a million bucks. You got the LA area where entry-level homes are pretty high. In Fresno, we're like a lot of the country where our, you know, our average first-time, second-time buyer price point is somewhere between one hundred dollars and $250,000. Oh, I, yeah. that so, shows how little I know about California because I didn't even think any market existed like that there. Yeah, so our market is um, typical to a lot of the country. The, the problem is, is when the Bay Area and LA start to kind of top out, mm -hmm. all that money comes into my market and feeds it. And then my market takes off. Mm -hmm. and so that's what happened last time. And so, that, and that's starting to kind of happen again. We're starting to see all those investors. Okay. They're getting priced out of the LA area. They're getting priced out of the Bay area and they're coming into the central Valley of California. And we're starting to see that cycle. And so um, for me, it's really starting to heat up. And so that's, that's where I'm at. I don't see it ending soon, but then again, I don't have a crystal ball and there could be something that happens that, you know, I'm not prepared for. And so again, we're just watching real close. Yeah, I know. I say all the time. I mean, some people will say we've got six months left. We've got a year left. We have two years left. Anybody that gives you any sort of definitive date right. doesn't know what they're talking about because there's so many variables to play into it. I mean, if interest rates, mortgage interest rate, rates went to 6% tomorrow, we'd see an automatic crash. 
And right. that's just one of the variables that, you know, employment, you know, uh, supply and demand and everything else. There's too many variables that kind of push and pull prices where we just can't say with 100 percent certainty. But I think like you, I kind of just feel like we're getting high. You're starting to see some strange things like, you know, like the fact that you can't just throw properties back onto the market. We're doing a little bit of that now. Like what we're doing with a lot of our properties is we're just testing we're testing the pricing to see what will happen right when we close on it. And we kind of know our numbers, what we're going to make on a fix and flip. And, you know, if we can make 80% of what we're going to make on a fix and flip in 30 days without touching it, why would we? I mean, it's kind of, you know, crazy to do it. So we are seeing a lot of that in our, our market as well. So you talked about obviously going through, you know, the crash and, you know, losing everything and kind of rebuilding your business. So talk about, what you did differently um, the second time you kind of built your business? You know, the, the second time I built my business, um, first and foremost, I'm, I just, I'm a lot more conservative as, as an individual. I think my lifestyle, you know, um, before I bought, I went out and bought the BMW so I can afford it. Yep. Um, you know, now, you know, when I, I have a, a 2012 GMC pickup truck, I bought it about two and a half years old. I paid cash for it. I have no car payment. So um, there's, my entire life was leveraged back then and my entire life is not leveraged now. So everything in our office, we have a 2200 square foot office. We own every every desk, every chair, the copier, we own it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I have nothing. If my, my, my month cycles, I have my, my concern is only for the profitability of the business, not worry about paying bills, if that makes sense. So I structured my world in a way to where I could make um, decisions from a position of power Yep, and not weakness. That was number one. Um, you know, number two, I started building a strong team early on. You know, the first time around, I didn't really, the first time around, I, I was arrogant and I was egotistical and I felt like, you know, everything stopped with me and I had to make all the decisions. And so I became a bottleneck in my organization, like a lot of people do. Um, things didn't get done because I was too busy or decisions didn't get made because I was too busy or whatever. And I just thought I was so smart. This time around, I realized that I'm not. <laughs> I, you know what? I always say to people, the older I get, the stupider I realize I am. Because Absolutely. you know, when I first started, I was in my 20s, and now I'm 35. And every year that passes, I'm like, man, I'm I'm stupider than the year before. I realized how much more there is to learn. Absolutely, I agree 100. percent So, I, or even though I wasn't in a position to hire, um, I actually brought my first project manager on, and this is this is like I couldn't afford to keep my light bill on. And I had a, a friend of mine who I knew was a great manager of people, but knew nothing about construction. And I painted the picture, the vision of the company I was going to build and the opportunities he was going to have. And he actually followed me on the first project for nothing. Um, and then the second project, I paid him a little bit of what I made on it. And we started building um, this company. And I, I basically was training my project manager right out of the gate because that was the part of the business I hated was project managing. I love acquisitions and private, raising private money, but I didn't like the project management side. Um, so I started training him right out of the gate and I reached out to a friend of mine who was a broker. And, so, uh, so let me stop you for a second. So you, yeah. you were, really didn't have any money. You painted the, the picture. What did that look like financially for that person? Because obviously they're not going to work for free, but you had to have some sort of, you know, deal there. He, well, the first one he worked, he basically followed me for free. And, oh, and the thing is, okay. Yeah. We were, we were kind of all doing side gigs. Um, we, we were getting, um, yeah, we had unemployment checks. We all had unemployment checks at the time. Um, I had, I had, uh, you know, I had run the restaurant. I had paid myself as an employee. Um, thank God I'd made that decision. So when we had to shut the restaurant down, um, I was able to get an unemployment check. 
And that's what I lived on as I was getting this kind of thing going, you know, a couple hundred dollars every other week. Um, and so we all had either side gigs or unemployment checks to live on. And I just told you, I just painted the picture. This is, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to build. This is how we're going to do it. This is how much money we're going to make. And um, we did the first project in June of 2012, sold it in September, 2012. I made nine grand. Um, I had to split it 50, 50 with the guy who funded it, you know, did the JV split. Um, and I, the money was spent before I got it, you know, but I made nine grand and it was on in, in November of 2012, we bought two properties. We actually closed a day apart from each other. And those are the first two that I'd done as my new company. And, um, you know, Lucius followed me around on those, my project manager. Um, and I ended up giving him a little bit of what we made. So on those, and, um, and then it was on, we did two, we did one, we did three. And then, and then we just started getting more consistent and I started kind of bringing people on as we grew and I just built a good team. I think at the end of the day, I built a good team. So, so talk a little bit about, about the vision that you painted for him. Well, you know, the, the, the advantage I, I think I had, but it's still something anybody can do is I, I knew the possibilities. I built one of these before I knew what kind of money could be made. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew, you know, I knew the opportunities in the business. And so, um, so I was able to just lay it out, you know, if we do X, Y, and Z where the market's at right now, you know, we should be able to make, you know, this amount of money in this amount of time and we can build a business that's sustainable, you know, and I, and, and I painted the fact that I was uh, wanting to do what I did for the last five years, which is, you know, accumulate capital as much capital as I possibly could. And then we were going to transition into buy and hold and long-term investments. And, and this is what your life is going to look like when we get there. And, um, you know, right out of the gate, I knew I wanted to get out of the way. I wanted to not be a bottleneck. I wanted to create an organization that ran on its own. And so I also, the other picture I painted was once the organization can run on its own, I'm not just going to pull myself out, but I'm going to pull you out too. And then you're going to basically have a free ride. Mm. So, you know, I, 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 I built the image of, of success and loyalty and what I truly wanted to accomplish. And, um, you know, what I'm going to truly stick to as far as my, my, my promises and commitments to, you know, to the guys who started with me. Now was he, was he a friend or an acquaintance or how did you, how did you find him? He was a friend. He's somebody I had known for a handful of years. Like I said, he, he'd uh, been corporate trained management. I knew he was a great people person and a great manager. He knew nothing about construction, but he was, I knew he could manage uh, people. And so that's why I knew he'd be a good fit. Look, the thing is, people, the one, one thing I want to add here about people and the people you bring on your organization, everybody wants to hire somebody who knows the job. And they're hiring the experience first. What I did and what I think is the key to success is hiring the person first and then yeah. training them into the job. Because you can teach anybody to do just about anything if they got a brain, right? You can't teach them how to be hardworking and loyal. Mm-hmm. You can't. And a lot of people who have experience, they've been in like construction for 20 years or whatever. I mean, for lack of any other, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say that everybody's bad, but most people are out for themselves and um, they're out for growing their opportunities. And they're, you know, once they gain experience with you, they're going to climb that ladder. You want somebody who's committed to your organization, to the success of your organization. And if you can find somebody who's hardworking and loyal, then you can train them to be successful in the position you need them in. And they're going to stick with you for the long term in most cases. Yeah, I so one of the best things I ever did. So you talked about hiring a project manager. So I, I have two partners that manage all of the construction side of the business for me. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things for everyone who gets into investing. I feel like that's the number one thing that you need to kind of replace because it's the thing that's going to slow you down the most. 
Let's take a quick break from the episode. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincamerancoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. So you got out of that part of the business. Have you gotten out of the other parts of the business too? And if so, how have you built the team and what does that look like? So our team today is, uh, we have three lead managers, three people who answer the phones all day. They answer phones, they make outgoing calls, they do follow-up. Um, you know, they're, they're basically driving leads, right? Okay, and so then, they're, they're answering the phones for what? Are these mailers? What are they, what are they answering the phones for? Anything we, anything we do marketing-wise. Right now, right now the, the first quarter of this year, we're really, really heavy on mailers. I, I've been testing out some new marketing campaigns and ideas. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be putting uh, PPC back into place this quarter and um, SEO and a few other things. But um, any, any, anything that is driven to the phone, they're answering those calls. So in the first quarter of 2018, we sent out almost 200,000 postcards, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then they were responsible for answering those. Uh, but their, their, their main job is not just answering the phone and booking appointments for the acquisitions managers. They're, they're also their follow-up. So if the phone's not ringing, they're going through the system and they're looking, okay, who haven't we touched bases with in a few days or a week or a month? You know, that kind of thing. So uh, what CRM are you using for that? We are Podio. Okay. Okay. And um, of course, we were using Investor Fuse. We switched um, since and we're, we're testing a, a new uh, new company out to see how well it works and flows for us. Um, but Podio is our base. Nice. Good deal. So so your, your acquisitions managers are taking the calls. They're following up with people. And then I'm assuming that they're sending somebody out that's not you, right? Absolutely. So then we have the acquisitions managers and um, our lead managers are booking appointments for the acquisitions managers. And the reason we have three lead managers, it seems like an overkill is because two reasons. One, I want to make sure follow-up. We're like on top of follow-up and we're, we're doing cold calling. So we're not doing cold calling on the volume that a lot of these other companies are doing it, but I still want us doing it. And then um, we're also in multiple markets. So we, you know, we have um, a couple people in different areas that we're in that um, go out for acquisitions as well. So we're answering calls from multiple markets and in our one hub. So lead managers book appointments for the acquisitions managers. Acquisitions managers go out and do the appointments. And they're the ones that are responsible for building the rapport with the seller and locking the property up in contract. Okay. And so how does the pay structure work for both the, the, the acquisitions managers and the people who are going out on appointments? So the lead managers who answer lead the managers. phone, lead managers who answer the phone, they are hourly plus they get a bonus every time that we get a contract that closes. Mm-hmm. And the acquisitions managers are, um, they're, they are, um, what's the word, commissioned. So they get, a, they get 10% basically whatever we make on, on the property. Regardless of whether you wholesale it or fix and flip it or whatever you do with it? They get 10%. Mm-hmm. Okay, makes sense. So the first first step there is the marketing. And you said, you know, letters, Google pay-per-click, SEO. You have the people on the phones that are booking appointments for then the sales reps to go out face-to-face. The face-to-face people are getting 10% of the profit. The people that are on the phones are getting hourly plus a percentage or some sort of commission on the deals to close. What else? Do you have anybody else on your team? Absolutely. So once acquisitions gets it in pro- and into contract, it actually goes over to to our office manager. I guess that was what I'll call her. She's like kind of like assistant bookkeeper, office manager, 
Um, and then she coordinates a transaction, you know, she does all our transaction coordinating um, and she puts it into the system, notifies the project managers that we have a project in the system and the project managers take it from there. Project managers will set an appointment to see the property and confirm the rehab budget, make sure we can do it for the assessment that the acquisitions manager put on it. And um, they'll start scheduling the work to be done if we're going to rehab it and prepare for the work to start when we close on the property. Um, or we'll, you know, we have a week, weekly meeting every Tuesday. In that weekly meeting, they'll they will um, you know voice say hey, this is this is a project we're gonna make money on, but it's one that we'd like like to throw on the market and see what we get, just because it's gonna be a pain in the butt project, you mm-hmm. know. And so those decisions are kind of made on Tuesdays, and um, yeah. So and then you know it goes through whatever process to go through at that point. If we're gonna wholesale it, we actually just brought on a dispo guy. He was an acquisitions manager here in the office. We moved into dispositions, and he is starting to we're starting to do a little more wholesale. But um, but our primary business is we're closing on pretty much everything. Like I said, we're we're either wholesaling or we're fixing flipping it. So same here. I get really frustrated with wholesaling. I did a bunch of it in kind of in the beginning stages of my career, and it's always like at least for me, you know, maybe I don't have the best buyers list, or I don't know what it is, but it, I always feel like it's just such a hassle to to do it. And then right. people, you know, cry and they try to nickel and dime you down. Once you own the property, it's game over because you know it just goes to the highest bidder. So I, for me, it's always like, if you have the cash close on it, you can figure out at a later date, you know, do you want to just wholetail it? Do you want to just clean it up? Or do you want to do the full gut renovation? But um, I've just not really been super into wholesaling lately at all. Right, right. It's, it, you know, they're two different businesses. They really, they really are it, two different businesses. Yes. You really need a dispositions person to do it. I mean, it really is, if you're going to do a bunch of wholesales, it's a full-time job. And for me, I just don't have time to do it. And you know, we've got the money to do it. So we just close on them. But um, so the property um, starts to get renovated. How many project managers do you have? We have two project managers um, and they have different roles. One of them, one of them is a lead and the other one's more of an assistant. Uh, they do manage their own projects sometimes, but most of the time um, Lucius will kind of oversee the entire thing and direct uh, Roe for what he needs to do. So um, and we work with general contractors. We don't have an in-house construction company. We work with general contractors. And what we've done over the years, we've developed standardized pricing basically in our market. So, which is, you know, we're going to pay this much per foot on paint, material and labor included, period, non-negotiable. Um, we're going to pay this much per linear foot for baseboard, material and labor included, non-negotiable. And we found by working directly with our contractors and learning what things cost material-wise and learning what it took to get things done, that we found that price point where we know they're making money, we're getting a deal, and no one's really, really super happy about it. <laughs> but it works. And, uh, and so we set that standardized pricing in place, and, and we work with general contractors, and, and we get our jobs done. We almost have the exact same setup. So I created uh, a budget calculating software myself, uh, which the listeners can go to www.oceancitybudget.com. And it'll walk through kind of all the big ticket items. And it allows you to calculate the budget within 10 or 15 minutes of kind of walking through. Mm-hmm. Now, when our general contractors walk through, the pricing is the pricing, unless we actually miss something. There are times, of course, where we go through and, you know, we don't see everything sometimes. So, once in a while adjustments are made, but just like you, we're giving them the budget. You know, this is what you need to get it done for and they're getting it done for that price or less. And, um, you know, that's the way that we do things as well. So 
your team, what type of projects do you typically do? Are you doing like two or three month projects, year long projects? What, what are you focused on right now? So because I'm a product of hand, having my, my butt handed to me in a market turn, um, I am in the mindset that everything is based on annualized ROI, which means my whole business is built on time. Yep. So we don't, we don't buy on the Mayo or anything that we, we have a, we want 15% cash on cash return. So over a hundred thousand into a project, want to make 15, I don't have a minimum. I'll take a $10,000 profit on a project. I'll take a hundred thousand dollar project profit on a project. Um, so 15% cash on cash is how we buy. We want to turn that money three times in a year. Mm-hmm. So our average turn time needs to be a hundred days. Uh-huh. In and out of a project in 100 days, and that so that's how we model it. And so our average re full full gut rehab is somewhere between three and five weeks. So what do you do if there you know there's a huge project that's going to take a year? Do you do you close on that? Do you try to wholesale it, or you just say I'm not even going to get involved with this particular one? If there's an opportunity to wholesale and make money, by all means, we're going to definitely explore that opportunity. But if there's not, we we don't bother with it. It's just not. You, you know, the thing is, is when you look at annualized return on the money. Sometimes it's not as good. Now, I'm in a market where the average um, price per square foot is about $140 a square foot. You know, I, I buy in first and second time buyer price points. We stay away from high-end projects so they take longer. They just take longer. There's a smaller buying buyer's pool. They're kind of a pain in the butt. So um, to add square footage or, or do, you know, add a second level to a house that's going to sell for $140 a square foot and be in it for a year, I mean, you do the math, the return's not that great. Right. Now, if you're, you're in the Bay Area or LA, I mean, the Bay Area has areas where houses are selling for $1,000 a square foot. So to add 500 square feet adds a half million dollars to your project. You know, the cost to do that isn't, you know, significant. And so you make a lot of money if you're in it a little longer. Mm-hmm. So if I was in a different market, I'd probably be a little more aggressive for um, longer, longer project timelines. But in, in my market, they just, they, the math doesn't make sense. I can make more money um, flipping, you know, the smaller houses, just turning and burning them, you know, in that year than staying at one project for a year, if that makes sense. Well, I think the risk component of it too. So we've done a lot of different types of projects and we're currently working on some stuff, new construction and stuff like that. And we're, we're pulling back from anything that's going to take us more than six months to do moving forward. Right. So we've got some projects that are permitted and they may end up taking a year to a year and a half from now to finish. But from moving forward, we're not doing any big projects like that just because of the risk, really. I mean, I look at it like the market's overheated right now. We don't know how much longer it's going to go for. Neither of us have a crystal ball. Nobody does. But it could be in a year. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be totally shocked if the market started to have a downturn in a year. It could be two years. It could be three years. We really don't know for sure. But we do know that we're getting towards the top. So to take on those those longer projects, and like you said, I've experienced the same thing. That a lot of times the longer term projects, the profit is higher, right? So you might make a hundred thousand versus forty thousand, but when you actually look at how many times you turn over your money on the smaller projects, you're taking less risk. And when you add up, if you can turn the forty thousand dollar profits three times, you're more profitable. So we've right. we've noticed the same thing as well. Um, so we're we're trending in the same exact direction as you. So a property gets finished. Do you stage it or do you just put it on the market as is? You know, we, we've toyed with staging in, in our, our market and it hasn't really made a difference um, in our ability to sell the project or get what we want out of it. Uh, we, on the, some of the, you know, we got into hiring homes for a little while. We did, we staged, we did a full stage. We've done kitchen and bathroom stages. And even then um, I didn't see a significant difference. Okay. Uh, and of course, we pulled back out of hiring homes because, like I said, you know, it takes longer to rehab, smaller buyer pool, 
you just the cash on cash return it as much. You might make, you know, like you said, a hundred grand, but when you do the math, you know, you could have turned the smaller properties and made 150. So um, the, the um, end result is no, we don't. Um, if, if you're in, again, we're in a different market. If you're in LA or the Bay Area, bigger cities, you know, it, it may work for you to stage, you know, there's, there are, there, there are market anomalies. Like you, there's no yep. blanket, there's no blanket postcard. There's no blanket mailing list. One of the things I've noticed is everybody, you, everybody always wants, Oh, give me, give me your letter that you're sending. I always tell people the letter that I send, it might not work as well for you as it does for me. You've, you've got a split test. So the, the concept yeah. of split testing with marketing and even with the staging, you're basically testing different things, right? So you're getting advice from different people. Maybe you stage one house one way, you look at what the ROI is, and then you look at the next house, you don't stage it, and then you see what the ROI is. For me, staging has always worked. But right. like you said, we're in two different markets and you're sending postcards, I send letters. Right. But that doesn't mean that in your in your market that my letter would work. So right. there's also the cultural, a little bit of a cultural difference and even just the way that people talk a little bit differently from one market to another too. So my letter might grammatically be a little bit different than yours as well. Um, so now you're not staging. Now, how do you go about selling the property? Are you always putting them back on the MLS? If, you, if so, are you using a real estate agent? How do you price them and things like that? So, you know, pricing's changed through the years. Um, in 2012, 2013, we would price a little bit below um, what we thought we can get for it because we would get bid up. Um, that started to shift a little bit. Now, now we're more pricing it where we want it, want to sell it at, and we're still getting bid up. Mm. So, um, the as far as reselling, so we have a real estate arm. We have a sister company's real estate company that has seven or eight agents in it, um, a broker, that kind of thing. So anything that we- Are you the broker? No, no, I'm not. Okay. So I, in California, you can set up a corporation, have somebody be a broker of record and manage it for you and still have it be your company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but they, they're independent. They do their own thing. And, um, you know, they're, most of the agents are retail agents. The broker though does the list. Anything that we buy in-house uh, that is from our marketing, he will list uh, for us. The, obviously at a reduced fee. Um the stuff that we buy, we do, I'm very big on networking and building relationships with agents and people outside our office. And so if an agent from another company brings us a property, we'll write the offer directly through them. And as long as they're competent, um, we will list with them, which not all agents are created equally. There's some incredibly wonderful agents and there's some incredibly not so wonderful agents. So the, the gap is incredible. So I've yes. got a 230 person real estate brokerage and, you know, there's not a lot of requirements to get your real estate license. So you literally have some of the most professional people, skilled salespeople that you'll ever meet and then going right. all the way to the exact opposite. And I think one mistake that a lot of investors make is that they do think that every real estate agent is the same. And there's just such a dramatic, you know, difference. And some, some agents understand the investment business. Some agents are super successful and they don't understand it at all. So there's just a huge gap. Right. They, they either, they, you're right. I mean, they, they either get it or they don't. And so you're, you're really looking for the people who get it when you're building these relationships, um, when you're networking. And I have a few agents, I have at least one agent in almost every office in town that um, they're good for three or four deals a year that they're going to bring. And, and we call them fall on your lap deals because they just, they just drop in our lap that call us and say, this one is, you know, falling out of escrow. If you get an offer in, it's yours. This one, you know, they're a hoarder and they don't want anybody to see the property. If you get an offer in, it's yours. And um, so we pick up deals like that. And then where we list with those, those agents, we want to give them opportunities to make money because we want them bringing us deals. So we try to create win-wins there. So how did you go about cultivating some of those relationships? Is it just bumping into people or was it strategic? 
You know, it's a combination of both. Yeah, you know, I think um, it's just reaching out to as many people as you can. When I when I first started back in 2012, I was broke. I literally was like, you know, like I said, buying a gallon of gas at a time with quarters. It was the craziest thing because I had this BMW lease that was that was behind on. I wasn't making my payments, and I pull up to a gas pump in a BMW and I buy a gallon of gas in quarters. We're talking about humiliating. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but. I was broke. I didn't have, I didn't have the money to market. And so I had to hustle and network. And so I, I used OPM, which is my version of OPM was other people's marketing. And um, I would get on Craigslist and I would troll Craigslist for anybody who was posting anything about we buy houses or wholesaling. I was calling bandit signs and I built a lot of really good relationships with people that I still do business with today doing that. Um, just hustling. Anytime I go to a property and there was an agent, I would get a card. I would invite him to coffee or I, you know, if, you know, once I started making a little money, I invite him to lunch. And um, I just built these relationships and I filtered really quick. It's like, either you get it or you don't, you get what I'm doing or you don't get what I'm doing. And I built a lot of really good relationships that way um, with people that I still do business with today. The other thing too, is as a company, we, we stand behind what we do. We try to be reputable, easy to work with, and um, that has paid off too, because when they're the agent on the other end of one of our transactions and realize we produce a good product and we're a good company, um, we start getting calls from those people in the future when they have projects or, or a seller that they feel like needs to be taken care of. So, you know, your reputation is huge. And I'll, I'll, if I can throw a story in here real quick, mm -hmm. I had a project that I bought out of probate. Um, it had a, it had a septic tank in it and it was not disclosed to us. It was in the middle of the city with the S stamped on the, on the concrete. So we thought it was sewer, renovated the whole property, sold it, buyer beware state. We were not obligated to do anything at that point in time. Um, turns out the property had a septic tank. The, the buyer was having plumbing, plumbing issues. They had an autistic child. And, um, we actually went in there. And it was at a time, it was at a tr transitional time in my company that I changed the way I was borrowing from JV, which was basically no money out of pocket to rate and term, which means I was, I was like putting money out and doing all this crazy stuff. It's a whole different story. So I was cash, I was really, really cash poor in that transition. And um, basically took most of what we made on that project. We, we, we abandoned the septic tank and put the sewer line in. Mm -hmm. And um, didn't have to do it, but we just felt like it was the right thing to do. And the broker on that, transaction was so impressed with the fact that we stood behind the product and we stepped up to the plate that he let his agents know in his office that if they were going to send any properties to any investors that we were the company to send it to. And we have made tens of thousands of dollars from that one decision, which was a hard decision to do the right thing, right? Yep. Um, we made tens of thousands of dollars many times over from that office sending us deals on a regular basis um, since then. And um, so just doing the right thing sometimes, even when it's the toughest time for you to do it, will generally pay off in big dividends. Absolutely. So you've also got a podcast. Um, how can our listeners, if they want to learn more about it, reach out to you directly and listen to that podcast? So I have a podcast called Flip Talk. And um, it is, you can go to fliptalk.com. Um, you can uh, email me at Don at fliptalk.com. Um, I do respond to my emails. Um, and then, of course, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, Google Play. Um, you know, we're all over the place. So, but you can on, on, the, uh, on the first page of fliptalk.com, there is a nice little player there that you can also go to that, the site and listen to it as well. Awesome. So final piece of advice, investor just starting out, what, what would be the best piece of advice you could give to them? OPM, other people's marketing. 
Okay. So many people, yeah. So many people are scared. Just get out there and hustle and call people and make relationships and, and, and let people know what you're doing and run your mouth and keep running your mouth and don't stop running your mouth until you achieve the success you want to achieve and, and you will get there. Yeah. I think the biggest mistake a lot of times that newer investors make is they watch HGTV and they think the real estate investing business is renovating homes and it's really a sales and marketing business. So Absolutely. we get out there, like you said, you run your mouth, you do all the marketing, you send out postcards, you do Google pay-per-click, you do SEO, all that good stuff. You do your marketing to get the face-to-face appointments. And then once you get face-to-face, you have to use sales skills in order to get those deals closed. And you've got a team now that does all that for you. So you can kind of step back in the background and really you know, run your business. So I think it's incredible, you know, what you've done. And I want to thank you today for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you having me on. It's been fun. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor. And especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.